Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our reading today is from Mark chapter 15, verses 25 through 39. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the associate pastor here, our senior pastor, Pastor Michael Keller is not here this morning, and so I'll be bringing the message uh, this morning. A writer named A.W. Tozer uh, once said that a people have never risen above their view of God. And what he means by that is how you view God determines how you live. So would you take just a moment with me and pray before we get to the message. Father, in heaven, there's the light of your glory and the beauty of your splendor where people and angels and other beings stand in awe and praise, where everything there is done right. And everything there is according uh, to your will. But here, where there is still darkness and shadows and brokenness and despair, we lament. Father, just listening and watching the video of 
uh, Trey Nichols' death right before our eyes breaks our hearts. That a man can't just go home in our nation and be okay. Or men and women out on the California coast can't go to a dance to celebrate without somebody coming in and ending their life here. There is such darkness and despair. And yet you know that too. Because it was in the darkness that you sent your son to bring your light of salvation. And so we pray, Father, that that light shine from your church here in uh, New York City, right here, uh, by Central Park, out into a city, into the world, and that all your church, everywhere, from every people and tongue, shine out that there is hope. That you are not sitting back and watching the shadows and the darkness win. But you are bringing the light of the gospel, the good news. And that one day, men and women and children will be able to walk and not fear not be attacked, or not be lost. And so we both grieve, but we grieve in hope. Help us this day to look and see that hope now as we turn to your word. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts to believe. And open our wills to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. And so... We are studying questions that Jesus asked in the New Testament. And because we are doing that, today I'm looking at what I believe is the saddest of all of those questions that he asked. It's not just that they're sad, but they're also, his question is hopeful. It's sad because God experiencing something on the cross that he had never experienced before. You ever uh, been to philosophy class and you've heard this, can God, who can do anything, create a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, the real answer to the underlying question is there was an experience that God had at that moment in the darkness that fell on the cross that he had never experienced in all of eternity. And it was so painful that he cries out with a loud voice. But it is also hopeful because if we look closely at what is meant by the question and what was going on there, we can see that he actually accomplished something beautiful and hopeful for us. But to see this beautiful, hopeful thing, we have to look at the principle of pain. Here's the principle of pain. The longer the relationship you have and the deeper the love you have, the greater the pain that is caused when that person leaves you. Let me say it again. The deeper that relationship that you have and the, the, the longer you've known them, the greater pain you feel when they leave you. Let me illustrate this principle. We all have got some habits. 
And sometimes we know where those habits come from, and sometimes they don't know where, we don't know where those habits come from. We just do them repetitively without thinking. My granddaughters were twin, are twins, and, and I watched them on Mondays uh, when they were growing up, and it's amazing to feed them at the same time, particularly for a guy who really struggles with children and mess. Because I'm a little so OCD, when I fed them, when they got to the phase where you could give them food out of a baby jar or something that had blended up, I would take the spoon and I would wipe their mouth after every bite so that there was none that was getting on me. In fact, if, you, if I had my twins, they're eight years old, up on this stage and I asked them this catechism question, what does Pops not like? My granddaughters would say, Pop like no messes, even today. And so today, one of the habits that they have, and their mother wanted to know, where did they get this? They went and they eat their cereal or soup. They always scoop their face with the spoon. I so embedded that. When I was young, I had two profound experiences that have impacted me, and I have a habit, and I know where it comes from. It comes from these two experiences. When I was young, uh, I was about seven or eight years old. My family, for Christmas, decided to go to a boys' ranch. If you don't know what that is, it's, a, it's an orphanage for boys. They had a great Christmas program. I just want to make sure I can see you. Uh, had a great uh, Christmas program, and so we went, but I have four brothers and sisters, there's five of us, in the car, in the Rambler station wagon, they decided it was my turn to be picked on, and they said, Bruce, we're going there because we're going to leave you. And so at seven or eight years old, you tend to believe your brothers and sisters, and it wasn't like my mom was stopping the teasing. And so literally as the whole two-hour experience. Everybody else is enjoying everything, but I'm thinking in the back of that rambler is all my stuff, and they're leaving me. The second one, I was, it's hard to believe this if you ever hear my voice, but I was actually in a particular musical in high school, and um, it, I had this uh, really lead part, and and so I had to go to all the shows and had to go to all the rehearsals. And one of them, my uh, uh, mother said, I'll pick you up afterwards. And, and so I'm sitting there waiting for my mother, but she doesn't come and everybody is gone. And, and even the custodian is the last one to leave. And so it's, it's 1, 1.30 in the morning and, and nobody came. They forgot me. I don't know if that's ever happened, but I've even forgotten my children at church. You know, you, you're so busy, you think the other one's got them, and, and you, lo and behold, you get halfway home and say, you know what, I wonder where my kids are. <laughs> so I get that. I'm not blaming anybody for that, but here's my habit. My wife was a social worker when I married her, and if you're ever a social worker, you're always a social worker, so she understands. I have this habit that when she gets up off the couch or leaves the room, I always ask her, where are you going? She knows that where that comes from. It comes from a a fear that you're going to leave me. And so I'm always asking, the deeper the relationship, the longer the relationship, 
are you leaving? And so, what does that have to do with this text? Jesus never knew a day without the Heavenly Father's presence until the moment on the cross. Do you understand that? God the Father and God the Son had an eternal relationship that they were always in each other's presence until that moment when the Father forsakes the Son and leaves Him. And He feels that phenomenal abandonment. It's there that Jesus is forsaken. And it is so painful to Him that He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, it simply means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that's a, we'll look and see, that's going to be a problem question. But I want us to answer three quick questions that beg to be answered because of his question. The first one is simply, how was Jesus forsaken? The second one, why was Jesus forsaken? And the third one is, so what does it mean that Jesus was forsaken for us? At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. So first, how was Jesus forsaken? I want to look at three words that are in the text. One of them is implied by the text because of the context. But here are the three words. The first word in the original language was, is one word, but it's translated two words for us. And it's the word loud voice or loud cry in some translations. But in the original language, it's just one word. And it simply means this, to scream in anguish to scream in pain. And so that has been debated for hundreds of years what Jesus means by, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some have interpreted that Jesus' words is an admission of failure of his mission. That because he's being abandoned, because he's on the cross, that this mission to save mankind is an abject failure. In fact, some have said that what he's crying out to God is, God, you've abandoned me, is proof that this isn't working. That whatever this is, it's a travesty of justice to leave me here. The amazing thing is not what these words mean. The amazing thing is that these words are recorded at all for us. Because if you, they're so unheroic, they're unheroic, they're, they're, they're un a popular to attach to a great leader. If you are going to find a religion, and if you're going to have the leader of that religion be a great guy, the words you would never have come out of his mouth, at least recorded, are these words. Unless these words, the meaning of these words, means success, not failure. Accomplishment rather than brokenness. And so that's what we're 
looking at here. And the second word, which is not in the text, but the context, that is, if you know this text, it's actually part of a larger text that is often called the Passion of Christ. In fact, uh, there's been a movie, and I understand that there's going to be a follow-up to that movie called The Passion of Christ. And they're referring to passion not in how emotive you are, but at the word passion in the ancient world meant suffering or the sufferings of. And so Jesus goes through a physical suffering. He has been, by the time he gets to the cross, whipped, slapped, crowned with thorns, deprived of sleep, and nailed there. But there's also a psychological suffering. He was taunted by his enemies, he was rejected by his own people, and he was abandoned by his friends. And this would have been enough for anyone in this room especially me, to cry out in anguish. To be physically and psychologically abandoned would have been enough. But Jesus doesn't say, Eloi, Eloi, why did they abandon me? He says, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? Why did you forsake me? And so there's this other kind of suffering that we don't tend to think about when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not physical and it's not psychological because he's not addressing that. He's addressing God, his Father in heaven. And that is a spiritual suffering. It is the kind of suffering not from human hands, but from divine hands. And the third word is this idea of being forsaken. It's its own kind of suffering. Whatever it means, whatever it is, it's more. It's worse than physical or psychological suffering. And I'm not making light of physical or psychological. If you've been abused either physically or psychologically, please don't hear me say it's small. It's great. I'm just saying as bad as that is, there's something worse. And it is this kind of suffering that Jesus took on our behalf. How do we know that? It literally says that Jesus goes to the cross like a sheep, silent, before his shears. He doesn't cry out until it says in verse 33... It gets dark for three hours. So whatever that is symbolizing, whatever that is pointing to, is the suffering that he's experiencing, which is greater than all of the combined suffering that he had before noon. The physical and the psychological that he experienced. That is, at that moment, God has experienced something that he had never experienced before. God the Father abandoned God the Son for the very first time. And it was so painful that he cries out in agony. His soul is literally plunged into absolute spiritual darkness depicted by the physical darkness of the time. Verse 33, there are, there on the cross and in that darkness, Jesus is experiencing eternal judgment on sin. How do we know that? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I like the word all there. It's everybody in this room. It's everybody in this world. And then in 623, Paul will say, for the wages of that sin 
is death. And then we have this verse that describes what that death is like. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, And they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And so, to challenge our thinking just a little bit here, to get us to think a little bit more than just simply literal here, hell is less about a place and more about a state or a condition. Jesus is not merely enduring three hours of just a bad time. On the cross for three hours, Jesus has entered hell. He's being utterly abandoned, eternally forsaken for us by the one he has known the longest and loved the most. This is why rejection by a spouse is so painful. And yet, this is infinitely worse. No wife has ever been one with her husband to the degree that Jesus has been one with his heavenly father. No child has been one with his or her parent to the degree that Jesus has been one with his heavenly father. Whatever Jesus is experiencing on the cross was a thousand times worse than any husband leaving his spouse, his wife, or any child being abandoned by their parents. This is why Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which brings us to the second question. Why? Why is Jesus forsaken? In Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick, there are two very famous, my favorite quotes. The first one is for those of us who claim to be Presbyterian. He says, We are all cracked about the head, Presbyterians and pagans alike. Kind of puts us all in the boat, same boat. But the most famous phrase out of Herman Melville's book is this one. When Ahab is frustrated and broken, he cries out, shaking his fist, and he says, from hell's heart I stab at thee. The truth is, Ahab is not in hell's heart when he says that. But there was one who was in hell's heart who instead of saying, I stab at thee, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus enter hell's heart voluntarily on the cross? And the answer is so that we would never have to experience that ourselves. Jesus goes to the cross, enters hell's heart for us so that we would never have to experience that ourselves. Isaiah 53, 6 puts it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Then he goes on and says, for he was cut off. From the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He paid the debt we owe God. The truth is, God had two options with our rebellion against him. He made everything good, put us there, and said, enjoy. And we said the only way to enjoy this is to rather than obey you, is to obey our own hearts. And that creates a debt. 
that has to be paid, and God has two choices. He can make us pay, or He can make someone else pay. And so He chose the latter from before the foundation of the world. He sends His Son in to pay a debt that we owed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who had no sin, God made to have sin on our behalf. You can argue all day long this isn't fair. In fact, I think most of us would agree it is not fair to have someone else pay for my wrongs. The one thing you can't argue is our need for it. There's not a person in this room who could climb up on the cross and enter hell's heart even for a minute and survive. We can argue fairness, but we can't argue its beauty and grace. And so through the death, he makes a way back to God's presence for us by dying in our place. Presence is one of the overarching themes in all of the Bible. In fact, you can trace it from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. In the garden, when everything is made new, when Adam and Eve are placed in it, it also says, in the, in the coolness of the day, God appeared to walk with Adam in fellowship. In the very beginning, there were no needs for places to meet God because God showed up. But as Adam and Eve rebelled against God and he moved them out of the garden, he kept away to, so that they could not get back. And the very first thing is every time a human being met God, and you can read this throughout the Old Testament, they built what's called an Ebenezer, a pile of stones so that they could say this is where they met God. Over and over again, so that when somebody walked by, they remember, oh yeah, that's where Jacob met God. Oh, oh, that's right. That's where Moses met God. Over and over again in Ebenezer until they're in the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land. God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle, which is a huge tent that they carried around with them from place to place, and God would show up in that tent. So they would meet him there. And when they finally got in their land and they started building their houses, David felt embarrassed that they had all these nice houses, but no nice house for God. And so they built a temple. And there God met them in the Holy of Holies. And when that gets destroyed, Jesus even predicts that it will, and it's destroyed in 70 AD, the great promise is that there is going to be a place where we are going to live, it's called the new earth, where there will be no need for a temple, no need for a tabernacle, no need for Ebenezer's, because in that place, God will again walk with us. The light of his glory will be seen. The sweetness of his splendor will be felt by all that is there. It kind of gets at this idea where, where Moses, he's... He's on the mountaintop, and, and God has been giving him the Ten Commandments and talking about how the people are rebellious. And Moses says, I tell you what, God, you could do me one favor, and, and this will really mean everything to me. Can you just show me your face? Can you just show me your glory? And God says, you can't see that and live. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you behind a rock, and, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by, and all I'm going to let you see is the hem of my garment. 
And so that happens, and Moses comes down from the mountain, and they ask him to put a bag over his head so that they would not be overwhelmed by the glory. The point is, is that we are always meant to see the face of God from the garden to the end. It's what leads Aaron. When Aaron wants to bless the people in Numbers 23, he says, here's a benediction from God. Benediction means good word. And he says to them, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's light shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you. The word there is countenance, but it's his face toward you and give you peace. Now, those of you who are Presbyterians, we really don't know what to do with these things. They're appendages that we use in work, but never in worship. And yet the Bible is littered with what to do with these things. And one of them is in regards to benedictions. One of the instructions that God gives his people in a benediction, it's not a prayer. It is a blessing. And therefore, it is to be received. And so the people who receive a benediction lay their hands out as if they're given the greatest gift. And it is that we might see the face of God. On the cross, in the, that dark moment, when no one could see anything, Jesus made a way for you to see the face of God forever. So that God would turn his face toward you. If sin turns God's face from us, redemption on the cross causes God to turn his face back again toward us. We know a little bit of that. Those people who know and have been around children, you know, children will perform for you if they know you'll laugh or clap. And they will do that over and over and over again because they want your approval. What happens when you ignore them too often? When they're doing something fantastic, a headstand, or, or, or maybe they're doing a dance, or, or they're, they're reciting something, and we don't pay attention to them enough, they come over, scream at us, and if that doesn't work, they climb into the lap, they grab your face, and turn it toward them. We, may we be the children who always are seeking after the face of God. Because Jesus went to hell's heart so that God would turn it toward us and give us the light of grace. It is because God turned his face from Jesus, he can turn his face toward us. It is because Jesus was plunged into utter darkness, God's light can shine on us. And because he first makes our story his story, he who knows, knew no sin became sin. He has now made his story ours. Third question. And it's kind of quick, but it's really more of an application. How do you apply this? I have three quick applications. If you believe this, and I understand people are at different stages of belief. Uh, some are saying, it sounds so fantastical that I need to work on this. I need to think about it. I've got questions. Great. You're in the great place. Ask them. Ask them the person sitting next to you. Ask them of anybody that you know. We even put people on the sides of the building after worship for you to go over there and ask. What in the world is he talking about that God's face is turned from me and can be turned toward me 
because of Christ. I want to believe that. Help me. There, everybody that will be over there can explain it to you. If you believe that, it removes the surprise, but not the sting of broken relationships. Do you hear the difference? If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and went into hell's heart for you, it will remove the surprise, but not the sting of broken relationships. Because if my relationship was broken by the wrongs that I did towards someone else or someone else's wrongs toward me, then my relationship with God can be broken. And that's why Jesus came, to heal the broken. And it, it, it takes out that surprise that all of a sudden, one of my close friends has abandoned me, has left me. The relationship is broken because of something I have done or something they have done. We're no longer surprised by that reality, but we still feel the sting of their leaving. And I told you the principle, the closer that relationship, the deeper the love of that relationship, the deeper that pain is felt. Secondly, it not only removes the surprise, but leaves the sting. It proves, provides hope for broken relationships. Reconciliation is possible. We Christians have the hope that our broken relationships, because of our broken relationship healed with God, that our earthly relationships, though they get broken, can be reconciled. There is hope no matter how broken those relationships are, no matter how far and how long it's been since we've had a conversation, they can be reconciled. If my relationship with God can be healed, then any relationship. In fact, if we feel that my relationship with you cannot be healed, what am I saying about my relationship with God? that it can't be healed. If you believe that, it makes all the difference in the world. Otherwise, why would we pray for it? Why would we work for it? We have hope that God not only heals vertically, but also horizontally. Third, quick application. It secures your identity even among your broken relationships. The truth is, some of your earthly relationships are broken and they won't be healed in this life. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just historical. Some relationships never get to the point where they're reconciled. And that's heartbreaking and grief-filling, but it is a reality for many of us. Things we have done... Things that they have done to us or to others have profoundly broken that relationship and there's no interest in reconciliation. And that's a source of pain for us. That from time to time we grieve the loss of a broken relationship. But even if some of your relationships are broken and some of you are so young it's hard to believe that you even have relationships that are already broken. But the longer you're on the earth the larger that number will become. But even if some of your relationships are broken and remain so for years or even the rest of your life, it does not change one iota your stand before God. 
having broken relationships does not disqualify you from, hell, from God sending Jesus into hell's heart for you. Sometimes we think about that. We, we look back at the history and the trail of all of the broken relationships that we have and we think we've disqualified ourselves or that we come into some kind of second-class Christianity. I'm just going to sit over here quietly so that nobody finds out the trail of relationships that I have broken over the years. And the reality is it's a failure to understand what Jesus did on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God was forsaken was so that your status, your broken relationship with him could be healed. And therefore, even if you have earthly broken relationships, that relationship cannot be changed because it had nothing to do with your goodness. It had nothing to do with your best efforts. It had nothing to do with you being someone that God said, man, I want that person. They're good looking. They're smart. They're connected. They've got the right relationships. They go to the right church. God did not pick you for that reason. He picked you simply because he loved you and nothing more. And there was a condition for his love. And that was someone had to pay. And that person was Jesus. Jesus entered the world and went to hell's heart and experienced what we should have experienced for all time and all places so that we wouldn't. When God sees you, he not only sees a reconciled child, he sees a forgiven child, one that belongs to him and whom he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome to your rest, even if your personal record doesn't support that declaration. He makes that declaration because of someone else's record that has been accredited to you as if you had done that yourself. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, he's talking about Jesus. And you carry that record. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into your rest. It is God who looks at you and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's my watch. Somehow Siri picks something up, I say. Think of this. If God breaks one promise, he's broken them all. And if God breaks his promises, then he isn't God. Wear that. Because you can put your trust in God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how many broken relationships are in your past, no matter how broken your relationship is with people because of what you have done or what someone else has done to you, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, not because of you, but because his son entered hell's heart and was abandoned for us that we might be accepted. That's the foundation. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? It changes everything about our relationships and gives us hope let's pray father i know this is hard it's hard because this is not how we operate we don't operate by paying someone else's debt we operate by hoping someone will pay ours we operate by hoping that we pull our own weight fill our own responsibilities pay our own debts 
But this debt's too great. What we owe you for what we have done, we needed someone else with a greater bank account than we can offer. And you sent Jesus. But not just to come and to physically, monetarily pay our student loans off, our mortgages, but enter into a spiritual world and go into hell's heart and there be willing to be abandoned by you, to be forsaken, so that you will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us the grace and the mercy to see that and see the beauty and taste its sweetness today and every day particularly on days that it looks like that things are going wrong. When, when we watch a video and we see so many broken relationships there in Memphis, but it only symbolizes the brokenness in every city and every town and every human heart. Help us to see the waste of, of human life in California where people went to dance the new year with great hope only to die. And to see that there is brokenness and not be shocked by that, but instead... Feel the pain. It stings. But to have hope that you will one day heal it all and make all things new. And you began it on the cross when Jesus cried out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To know that it was not a cry of loss, of, of failure, but of success. We have been redeemed. We have been re reconciled. And so, Father, it gives us great hopes for all the earthly relationships we have that need reconciliation. Help us take them to you in prayer, but also to work toward them being healed by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.